The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. All right, if you have your Bible, let's open it to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, and we're going to look at verses 50 through 56. Matthew, chapter 27. Let me just say a quick prayer for this. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that we could hear what your Spirit is saying and that you would speak to us, lead and guide us into the truth, that knowing the truth, we will be set free as never before. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, and everyone said, Amen. Okay, we're going to start with verse 50 and, and uh, quickly go through this. Um, in verse 50, the, the moment Jesus died, he, he cried with a loud voice, it is finished, which means paid in full. So beginning with verse 50, it says, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. I want you to note again, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, and then he released or gave up his spirit and died. Most victims of crucifixion spend their final moments in total unconsciousness or exhaustion, or they're out of it. And then, you know, slowly, because you die by suffocation, uh, and then you die. So they're totally out of it. Not Jesus. Jesus was not like any other human being. Of course, he was not like any normal man. He was the Son of God. And though tremendously tortured and beaten and crown of thorns and the spikes through his hand and through his feet and his back laid bare by the cat of nine tails, Jesus was conscious to the very last breath, and right up to the moment of his death, and to show who he was, he chose the moment that his spirit would be released from his body and when he would die. His cry with a loud voice is proof that Jesus died voluntarily. Death did not come take his life, and it was not from physical exhaustion. Look with me in John chapter 19, verse 30. It says, so when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, exclamation point, should be in your Bible. He shouted it, and bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. The phrase that's translated into our English Bibles, it is finished, is one word in the Greek language. Tetelestai. One word, which means paid in full. (laughs) Jesus paid for your sins. He paid for your separation from God. He paid your debt that you and I owed to hell for eternity to be separated from God. He paid it in full so that we could be set free and delivered, become born again, become God's sons and daughters and children and have the gift of eternal life, be the bride of Christ, be married into the family of the king of kings and share in his kingdom and inheritance forever and ever and ever. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Our God is an awesome God. It was the cry of a winner. Jesus fully paid the debt for our sins 
and he finished the eternal purpose on the cross. And then he yielded up his spirit. No one took his life from him. Jesus is a man unlike any other man. He gave his spirit. He yielded his spirit at that moment. Death had no righteous hold of him. And therefore, he could not die unless he chose voluntarily to yield up his spirit, which he did. Look with me in John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. Let's read this. Therefore, my father loves me because I laid down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. So I want to just say it again in one more way to make it very clear. Jesus gave up his life because he willed it. And he willed it when he wanted to, how he wanted to, and he did it because he loves you and me so much. Ah. Oh. There is therefore now no separation from God's presence and glorious the moment Jesus died. So now finally that moment has come. He yielded up his spirit. He cried out, paid in full, let it be finished. But now in verse 51, that what happened the moment 2,000 years ago Jesus died on the cross? Then, behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth quaked, and the rocks were split. Woo! Man, I love that. This is awesome. When the moment Jesus died, the veil in the temple. Now, Jesus is being crucified outside the city. And he's there between the two thieves. The moment he dies, right next to Jesus is the temple, inside of which is the holy place, and then there is a curtain, a veil, inside of which is the Holy of Holies. And that veil is what separated the holy place where the priest could minister from the Holy of Holies, it's called. The Holy of Holies is where the Ark of the Covenant was. Uh, that's, that's where the two golden cherubim are over. Uh, basically, the Ark of the Covenant had the Ten Commandments inside of it the manna uh, that had been given through the wilderness and Aaron's rod that had budded at one time, these things all pointing to Jesus Christ. But, but the priests, all year long, they could not go into that. There was a veil separating them from where God's manifest glory and presence was, except one day a year. On Yom Kippur, one day a year, they, he, with all the sacrifices, the priest could go inside the Holy of Holies and, and he had to do the sacrifice and that would be accept for the nation and he had to go through all the things that God had outlined, the details in the Old Testament. They also tied a rope around his ankle, had bells on it, so as he was there and walking around and ministering and communing and talking to God and praying and interceding and repenting for the sins of the nation, uh, if the bells stopped, what it meant was he had done something wrong and the glory of God and the holiness of God would strike him and he would die and they just had to drag out the high priest. That's not a good day, is it? 
So that's what it was. So can you imagine the fear of the people? Same thing happened on Mount Sinai when God gave the Ten Commandments and then God said, you better put a a barrier around the whole mountain because I'm holy. And the people, man, they were worshiping the golden calf and all the rest. And and he said, so don't go past the barrier lest I break out. Moses, you alone, you come up to the top of the mountain. I'll reveal myself to you. And they didn't listen. And then 3,000 went over the little barrier and 3,000 died on the day that the law was given. So they respected that one day a year. But now, now, the moment Jesus cried with a loud voice, it is finished, paid in full. The veil where the glory of God was hidden behind because of the separation and sin of man. When God saw his son die and his body broken and his blood shed and he gave up the last breath, it says the veil was torn from top to bottom. Do you realize? I want you to, I want you to, here, I'm going to show you. This is a a picture of what kind of the veil looked like. I want you to know that veil was 60 feet long, 30 feet high. It was consisting of some 72 squares and the thickness. Now listen to this. The thickness of the veil is, was said to be as wide as the palm of your hand. That's how thick the veil was. In fact, it is written among the Jewish people that in order to move the veil, which they had to do at certain occasions, took several hundred priests to move it. It was so heavy. Now, with this in mind, we can better appreciate the miracle event of the tearing of the veil. No priest did it. No man did it. No disciple snuck inside, which they never could have done, uh, to rip and tear it in half. God reached down and put his hands on the top of that veil, and he ripped the veil in half. Why did God rip the veil in half? Because now sin Since his son had paid for the sins of humanity, his spirit was now free to be poured out upon all and any who would call upon the name of his son who loved and died for them, and he could fill them with the Holy Spirit, and he could break forth. Hallelujah. Woo! Powerful. God was telling Israel and all the world that the way into his presence had now been opened by the death of Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And it's almost as if the veil represents clothing or the garments of God. And the veil almost with perception, recognizing the murder of her Lord, the temple rent her garments. And it was not a slight rent. It wasn't a little uh, tear. It was literally like you take it, split it, and separate it as far as your arms could make it because it was made for the greatest of sinners can walk right through. Now, in uh, Genesis, I didn't put this scripture in your notes, but if you want to write it down, read it the story later. Genesis chapter 37, verse 34. Remember the story of Jacob and his 12 sons, And this will give you an understanding, an illustration of the the tearing of the veil. So the other sons sold their brother Joseph because he had the coat of many colors and 
and he was the favorite son, and Jacob didn't even hide it. Man, he loved him, and he gave him the coat of many colors, like, you're royalty, you're my king, you're my gem, you're my heart. And so the brothers were mad, and they were jealous, and they sold him into slavery, and he gets taken away. So now the brothers have to come up with an idea. What do we tell dad? Oh, let's, you know, so they grabbed his coat, and they got some animal blood, and they put it on it, and they go and tell their dad a story. Well, Joseph got wild animals came, and they got him, and they bit him, and they ate him, and then he died. And what's interesting is when, when Jacob, the father, hears what happened to his son, Joseph, his beloved son, his favorite son, the Bible says in Genesis 37, verse 34, that the father, Jacob grabbed his, his clothing like this. And this is what Jews do. This is part of their culture. When they are mad and when they're emotional, you can't just feel it. You got to show it. So he grabbed, they grab their garment and they rip their clothes down the middle like this. So that is an example is showing you that Look, on the, for our side, it's like, whoa, wahoo, look, the veil is, you know, split in two. We, now we can go into the presence of God. What you don't understand or what we cannot fully appreciate is that for the Father, the cost of being able to set his spirit upon us and come in us and forgive us and reconcile us and make us his sons and daughter, it cost him his son. So the Father, the moment he saw Jesus die, it's like the Father taking his garments and going from the top to the bottom. It broke God's heart. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him should not perish, but should have everlasting life. And the same moment the veil was ripped in half in the temple, there was an earthquake. The rocks were split. Nature was shaken by the death of the Son of God. And by the way, because we're getting near the second coming of Jesus Christ, you can watch. Nature is again responding because they're ahead of human beings, knowing the king and the creator of every rock and every mountain is on his way back. And it is responding. Men's hearts did not respond to the cries of the dying Redeemer, but the rocks responded. Rocks were split in two. Rocks were torn asunder because rocks were more tender than the hearts of men in that moment when Christ died for us. Look with me in verses 52 and 53, more miraculous signs that took place at the hour of Christ's death. This is very interesting. Matthew is the only one who mentions this. None of the other gospel writers tell us this, but it apparently happened, and it is true so after the veil of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom, and the earthquake, there was an earthquake the very moment Christ died, and the rocks are split. Verse 52 says, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep, which is a New Testament way of saying they had died, were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Wow, this is, this is wild. Have you ever thought about that, heard about that, read about that? After describing the earthquake in the region at the moment of Christ's death, Matthew says, many graves were open and the bodies of many holy people 
who had died in Jerusalem were resurrected. Now, if they were resurrected then, it was a short-term resurrection because then they had to die again. That's kind of a bummer. How would you agree, would you agree with that? It's like Lazarus. Wow, he died, he gets resurrected, and he's got to die again. But he wasn't afraid of death the second time. But the Bible does talk about resurrections. talks about Elijah who raised the son of a Shunammite woman. talks about, you remember the story of Elisha who wanted the double portion, a greater uh, prophetic portion than Elijah, and then he died, and they buried him, and then later... There was some guy that got into a fight and then he died and so they threw him near where Elisha's bones were and when they threw the dead kid in there, being next to Elisha's bones, he resurrected and came back to life. So it's another example. Paul the apostle was teaching one night, late into the night, and a young guy was, they were up in, you know, several stories up apparently and he was in the window, they didn't have glass, so he's sitting in the window I don't know if it wasn't a great Bible study or what, you know, but he fell out the window to the ground and died. Now, that's a bad Bible study. When you, when you <laughs> preach your heart out, A, they fall asleep, and then B, they die, that's not a good day. But Paul went to the poor guy and, and he resurrected him. And then, of course, Jesus had just resurrected Lazarus after he'd been dead four days. Then he, he's resurrected, and then he's there, but then he dies again, but he goes to be with the Lord. But apparently, when Jesus died, and the veil in the temple was rent from top to bottom, and there was an earthquake that shook the whole region of the city of Jerusalem, there were others who had died, let's say recently, like Lazarus, who resurrected and started walking around in Jerusalem. And there, would that be weird? You're like, you went to the funeral, the guy died, you heard about it, and then there he is walking around in Jerusalem. And they appeared to many people. This is another amazing sign for that generation as these risen ones went into the city of Jerusalem where the Bible says many people saw them. What were they testifying? Not just about what happened to them, but about the moment that they themselves were resurrected. And it all points to Jesus. Now look with me at the next verse. Verse 54, this is amazing. And so when the centurion and those who were with him, who were guarding Jesus, so these are Roman guys, they're soldiers. Who knows, they could have come from Italy somewhere, some other place in the Roman Empire. They happened to be stationed in the Middle East troubled area then as it is now. And that's his job is to watch over and guard prisoners that have defied some laws and Rome gets involved. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly saying, truly, this was the son of God. The testimony from a hardened Roman soldier who witnessed Jesus on the cross. This man had no doubt supervised the death of perhaps hundreds of other men by crucifixion. But that day, with Jesus of Nazareth, with that sign above his head in three languages, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, and no doubt you couldn't be, if he was there as a Roman soldier, He'd heard about their beliefs and about a Messiah and probably had heard about Jesus of Nazareth. There'd been quite a commotion since Passover had begun. 
and he knew there was something different, something special, something supernatural about that man who died. And what he said was, truly, if anybody is that man that I saw, he heard all the seven last sayings of Christ on the cross. He saw his strength, that he was in charge, that he was in control, that death didn't take him. He shouted and then he gave up his spirit and he's praying for them. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He's taking care of his mom. He's saying to the guy next to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. Whew, if you and I had been there near Jesus for such a time as that, I think we would, we would never be the same again. What a beautiful, precious thing that we get to have communion. And he said, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. <sighs> and in my own mind, I'm there. So let's finish with these last couple of verses for this evening. And I want all my sisters to take note of this last point and application, and many women who followed Jesus were there. We read, beginning in verse 55, it says, and many women who had been following Jesus, I want to say who had been following him variously along the way for some three years, maybe even three and a half years, and had followed him all the way even from Galilee, which is in the northern part of Israel, and they were ministering to him, were there looking on from afar. And among them, and names some of them, not all of them, but a few of those who were of renown, were Mary Magdalene, out of whom were cast seven demons. You know what? When you're demon-possessed and you got demons, and she had not just one, those nasty, nasty, evil, dark, violent things, and to have seven of them in, it's like you're in hell. A person demon-possessed is living in hell. They are tasting eternal damnation, darkness, and separation from God. Then Jesus comes and knocks those seven demons out of her forever, and they can never come back. You, you don't think she followed him wherever he went and loved him wherever he went and supported him wherever he went and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. I want to close tonight by saying to their everlasting honor, these women demonstrated more courage and affection to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior, especially at the cross. And they were, of course, the first ones there to the resurrection and the first ones to say that he is risen and he appeared to them first than even did the disciples. And I want to say as your brother to all my sisters here tonight and all those who are listening and all those who are watching, we need such women now. We need such women today that God is calling you. God has his hand upon you. Do not be discouraged. You are not sidelined. You are, you are priority. You are important. You minister to him. There's a reason that they were mentioned because they blessed Jesus, they encouraged Jesus, they followed Jesus, they were faithful to Jesus all the way to the darkest hour of his life when he was on the cross and all the way to the resurrection. But then as Jesus rose from the dead on that beautiful, glorious third day, then as the women came and they brought encouragement to the guys and they stand up 
And Peter, on the day of Pentecost, which we celebrated a few days ago, stood up and preached his heart out. And 3,000 souls were saved, men and women, Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, high class and no class, religious, irreligious, guilty and innocent, oppressors and those who had been oppressed, the educated and the uneducated, different races, different nationalities, different languages, different classes. It was a mixed crowd on that Pentecost that got saved, but was no doubt a prophecy of what God desires to see in the second coming when he comes for his bride, his church. Amen? Amen. Hallelujah. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.